0: Welcome to the Better Future podcast series brought to you by Driven by Design Award programs. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design, and joining me is Kirsten Mann. I'm Global VP of Product Experience for Oracle's Construction and Engineering Global Business Unit. This podcast series is a special series where we focus on design in the boardroom. It's a series of in-field recordings and live panels with design giants from around the world. And we discuss how boards are leveraging design to accelerate economic outcomes. In other words, how is design being managed up, down and across the organization? In this episode, Mark and Carsten discuss how boards who are leveraging design and digital services are helping to evolve health both in clinical operations and the patient experience. It's a conversation about new experiences, new modes of operating, and new opportunities. Yeah, my name is Karsten Vievel. I run uh, Astu Studios. So Carson, you've been here not that long, and you've been around the design industry and a range of other, other senior roles, and you've got a really good exposure on how different consultancies, different practices work. What would you say is the unique thing that us two have got?
1: Yeah, I think if, we, if I go back to sort of what we believe and what we stand for, us two is an, is an interesting company because it was started by two designers that were childhood friends in the UK, um, and they refer to themselves and have been referring to themselves since they were teenagers as mills and sings. And, you know, they did, I think, what a lot of designers do, which is they thought about starting their own company. They started their own company when they were straight out of, out of, out of school, really, in their early 20s. And their goal was to create a fampany, so a company that's a family, but also a company. A lot of them have never heard of a fampany. Yeah, yeah. And so I think a lot of what we do comes from that notion that uh, a place of work can also be a place of care. Right, so we want to bring the best of family and the best of company together. Now this is, it gets tricky there because we all have very different notions of what a family should be and we have different experiences, of course personal experience with our own family. But I think a lot of what we try to do is bring that kind of deep care of, of our personal relationships or friendships to work, to the workplace, and, and also do show up as our true selves, as, as we say now at work, right? So I think that, that shows up in the, in the focus and the care that we bring to our work and our craft, but also in the way we treat our clients and each other. And uh, what I find stunning and interesting is how many of our clients, I sometimes joke that you come for the UX, you stay for the ways of working, that a lot of our clients, initially hire us for something very tangible and then it turns into much more of a consultative engagement where they say, can you teach us to do what you're doing so well? And that the ways of working ultimately becomes why clients stay with us.
0: And therefore that, that brings me to the reputation of, of design expertise is, a, is an artifact reputation. The idea about solving problems hasn't been as well socialized and it hasn't been explained to to a lot of people because when they see some design done, it's generally that we celebrate it in the form of an artifact. And I know in the awards it's very interesting of getting the judges to not just go look at at the projects as artifacts, but what are they solving? What are, they, what are the challenges here? Where's the transformation that's taken place? So it's interesting to hear that that's where you're finding that there's that the value grows. People are coming in for something tangible, an artifact, and yet then realize you've got a lot more potency and capability to help them beyond that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it depends where you are in the world. I think in a lot of, in a lot of parts of the world, design is still associated with styling and with a sense of beauty and delight. And it's also not entirely wrong. Now, we want to point to something and say, I, I made this, and it's not just functional, but it also has, you know, values beyond its, its utility.
0: And- yeah, that, but there's a, there's a funny thing about to get to the delight, something has to be graceful, and just being pretty doesn't necessarily mean it's graceful. So something can still be crap to use but be gorgeous to go look at.
1: The design discussion, of course, in the context of something like design thinking has become much more process oriented. And, and as a I think overall it's a good thing because it increased the familiarity with design and I think the the notion that design can be a, a tool for problem solving or simply a, a way of being a way of thinking and developing empathy for for users for customers I think I think all of that's good it's a good thing it's a good thing in a corporate conversation It's a good thing in a um, in a not-for-profit situation as well. I think where it gets tricky is where it gets kind of dumped down and trivialized, right? I mean, no one would hire someone uh, as their general counsel who had p- taken a class in legal thinking. Yeah, it's, a, it's absurd, right? I mean, you don't learn a craft. You don't learn a profession uh, in in a two-week class or from, from uh, you know doing something for a few weeks so it's a it's
0: a skill just like any other and should be treated seriously and that brings in that area of masterful practice rather than just a cursory exposure. Now, I've got a pretty good idea what an actuary does, and I understand they take numbers and they work out risk, but after a two-week course in actuary, actuarial thinking, I don't think I'd actually be very good at it. Yes, yes. But I might know why I should deploy an actuary, and I might know some of the precepts and concepts there, but if the actuary started to ask me to do actuarial thinking, it's probably... A waste of time. Yeah. So one of the one of the things that uh, came up in uh, when we did one of the live recordings of, of design in the boardroom in Hong Kong, and a guy from IBM asked asked the question. He's like, "What can we do that creates the magic?" You know, and he, and I think what he was after was that there was some prescriptive thing that they should be putting in every project, a little bit like as a, as a technologist would think is it's got to include this, and then it will be contemporary. And we've seen that come through in various frameworks. We've seen it in various, you know, CSS3 came through, HTML5. So so it's coming very much from a spec perspective. And so I I pulled him up and I said, I think maybe we need to get reference from the the health industry. Public health has one thing that actually changed the history of mankind, saved more lives than anything else and changed the way that, that health works around the world and that's sanitation, washing your hands. Washing your hands stopped more people from dying than any advanced cancer research, any, uh, you know, um, CRISPR, DNA. And, And I wonder if design professionals that had been so heavily... Convinced that they had to go and tell people what design is, which is where the idea design thinking part come came from. Whereas probably what they need to do was just convince people putting the customer first and serving them rather than trying to subvert them might have actually been the shift that needed to take place. And and in another set of the conversations, we came up with this just little catchphrase of the cost to convince is now more than the cost to serve. And that's why I think we're seeing people saying, can you just do what the customer needs? Microsoft's saying that their marketing budget is now two-thirds of what it was before, or reduced by two-thirds, because they're making products that people want. And they're still getting the, the sales and the, and the transactions there. So that idea that uh, your customers need to become designers is probably, that's not a particularly useful tool. The idea that you can actually be great partners with them to help them to accelerate what they're doing, Put, put some of that into their into their business, but they still need the masterful guidance that comes from people who know how to do it in a deaf manner, which is where you you guys come into the frame.
1: yeah I mean I, I, I don't know if I would use the word magic, but I think that desire to make a, a situation, a context uh, a behavior like the the washing washing hands, sanitizing is a behavioral change, right? Just to make that more than just incrementally better, make it dramatically different. I think that's what's expressed there, and I think often it's tied to a story because we're you know as as human beings hardwired to sort of a story. Where you look at somebody, you realize the situation, you see oh this obviously frees them up or improves their their condition, right? I think ultimately. Uh, if we can see that something is dramatically better or that the human condition in the context has improved dramatically, that will feel like magic. I mean, i give you an example. We did some work in the UK for uh, a large children's hospital called Alder Hay. that kind of top of their class in terms of medicine. And uh, what we tried to do was just help a little bit with making the children feel a little less anxious. So in the hospital, they're using stickers that are basically characters that are sort of in part. It's an information design solution to kind of denote where you are. I'm in the waiting room, pre-surgery, but it's also a way to um, make the whole clinical situation a little less scary. And what we created is essentially a, a digital experience that that brings these stickers to life. It's, in quite literally it's an augmented reality thing so the kids have little tablets and they can hold them onto the onto the characters onto the stickers and then the stickers spring to life and it's just it's a, it's a way you could say it's simply it's distraction but it's also just a way of kind of taking some of the scariness out of bringing sort of a, a human element into the clinical white sterile situation right so you look at that and they say that there's an element of magic there because it, it's just we can all empathize with the situation of being a scared patient whether we're a child or an adult and it just so obviously improves the condition of the child of the patient in that situation
0: and, and that's a fantastic device because there's some agency and one of the things that happens in, in hospitals is it's the people who are caring who are also disengaged and their context changes and there's a bit of projection of their fear of their concern generally if you're the sick person you surrender it's like yep i know you're here you're going to make me better uh, that's what it is i might be bored but it's the people who actually don't have any agency and are just observing that can go create some noise there which distracts and makes and brings up the anxiety so the idea that the child is being occupied and that there's a, an alternative activity that they can focus on is going to actually lower Everybody's stress levels. And that anxiety moment's going to disappear.
1: Yeah, also to introduce digital technology in a way where it actually helps the caregivers, right? Because often what we see now is that the, the doctor or the nurse are using digital, are forced to use digital technologies just simply for bureaucratic reasons. You're sitting with them in a room and they're staring at their tablet, they're entering information, and it's all for insurance and liability purposes. They're not actually looking at you, they may not even be listening to you because they have no time. Right, so the time and bureaucratic pressure uh, are, are paramount and, and digital in, in a way just becomes a way of, of storing data about you rather than, than empowering, in this case, the clinician to do their job faster and to pay more attention to the human being.
0: And, and there's also there's an interesting spectrum of patients as well. There's the people who are very relaxed, not anxious, they're fine. But the moment somebody gets into that environment where the anxiety is coming up, if you can't work out how to arrest it, it's going to run away very quickly. That's you know, that's part of our the way that our fear works.
1: Yeah, and I mean, exactly.
0: And and so you know, getting the engagement, which is that you're able to go do something while the clinicians busy doing what they're doing, is useful. Having the similar interfaces that you're working with, you're on a digital device. They are, there's some, uh, there's some unity that's taking place there. So then that project's been rolled out. It's been in the market how long? A couple of months, a year? Yeah, a couple of years probably. A couple of years, okay. So then has it been given an upgrade, you know, have there been insights that have come in it so that there was the initial delivery and then there was an opportunity to get more? Yeah, I
1: mean, I I think there are – it's always a little tricky with these stories, especially in the medical context because – uh, the limits to kind of sharing the results, but I think we've been, and, and our clients, have been quite happy with the results in terms of the, the reaction that we see from patients and how it sort of changes uh, the interaction in, in, uh, in the hospital. I think in general, I think this idea of bringing consumer technologies let's say mobile devices into the medical situation is something that we're really interested in and a lot of that our work is at that intersection of consumer technology and and clinicians so you know t for example uh, can we actually help consumers to sleep better or well, we've done a, a bunch of work around mindfulness and uh, sort of can we actually make consumers and, and people like you and I uh, patients more knowledgeable about that condition and have them play a larger role uh, so this whole area of sort of digital health or even digital therapeutics that's essentially about behavior change, right? whether that's smoking cessation or depression, anxiety, even even Alzheimer's disease. I think that those are all areas where, where digital technology can play a huge role and frankly where design can play a huge
0: role. One of the things that happens to people in, in health scenarios is that agency, they lose that. They also lose dignity. I've seen a range of projects that have leveraged digital technologies to help restore dignity of the patient. And that's an interesting aspect that we... I was talking with uh, with some colleagues a couple of months ago and we were looking at how the health industry has changed. And health used to be about science, a practitioner and funding. They were the three things and that made up the health system. Now you've got that old old-fashioned system is really a workhorse communications and experience and that's the new health system and so you're doing things there which is helping with the communications and helping with the experience you're not involved with the science and that practitioner expertise which takes them eight or ten years to become trained in that but you're definitely helping in how do you actually get the experience of health to improve and the communication of health to improve and that's modern health and obviously areas that that the hospital networks the the board are again have to make sure that they're dealing with how much of it are they asking you to go do it or how much is it that there's um, isolated innovation labs in, in a few facilities that they've turned around and said, can you give this a chance? Because the, they're kind of the two modes, aren't they? There's the Maverick who actually gives a, who sponsors it and says, give it a chance. And the other one is that the boards are just saying, can we get some of that and we want to go see who's the best provider. What what are you seeing as far as Bruce? Yeah, I,
1: I, I think we're getting pulled more into the, the clinical areas. And, oh, okay. yeah, um, we have been a bit more on the on the wellness on the consumer side, but we're getting pulled more into the clinical area. So here's what happened. A few years ago, we created, um, again, we, we always have to work with medical practitioners and clinicians. We're not doctors, right? Um, we didn't take a, a medical thinking class
0: either. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get back to that one. Okay. Um,
1: so um, a few years ago, we've worked with um we were interested in doing something around um, mental health, and we worked with two psychologists that have a, uh, a company called Thriveport uh, on a on a mobile app called Mood Notes, and it's essentially an app that is based on cognitive behavior therapy, and it uses by and large cognitive behavior therapy, um, and it's just. It's just a a tool for you to become more aware of your your emotions, of your thinking, right? Uh, If you're depressed, if you're anxious, sort of to to learn why you're feeling that way and maybe finding ways to get away from the story. You know, I'm going to fail. or This is, again, a bad day. Right? Get away from the sort of bad stories that might hold you back. And so um, there's a very simple thing in the Mood Notes app. The very first thing that you do is you record your moods, and it's just a face. So you simply draw the smiley up or down. And just a very kind of playful way to get you into the, the CBT flow, that mm-hmm. cognitive behavior therapy, uh, therapy dialogue that normally would be kind of complicated and you have to fill out forms and there's a huge barrier towards therapy and it's sort of a simple way to engage you into what's essentially a clinical interaction. We now have lots and lots of clients that see that and they say, can you do this for migraines with us? Or can you do this for sleep with us? Or can you do this for other conditions? Sort of that kind of simple, consumer, almost playful interaction, bringing it into the clinical space. And for lots and lots of conditions, I think what what, um, both medical device makers but also pharmaceutical companies are now looking at is using digital as a way to engage patients more, to record data, with all the, you know, privacy, etc cetera, complications, but then using patients more as part of uh, being more involved in, in the therapy as well.
0: And we know that uh, when we have more data points that we begin to get a lot more of the story. Uh, last year, about this time, I was diagnosed with some mild hypertension. And, uh, you know, the idea was maybe once a year that my blood pressure was taken. Well, now it's been taken about three or four times a day. We found out some fascinating stuff, which is... Uh, and then because it was also being measured, well, I went into some experiments, which is, what happens if I actually just take a calm moment before I take one of the readings? And uh, then you're going, oh, so that mindfulness, calming yourself down, that's good for your hypertension. And then over the last 12 months, I think I must have seen a doctor maybe four or five times. And I go in. I pull up an app. He says, how's your blood pressure? I just show him a candle chart that goes and shows. Oh, yeah, cool. a couple of outliers there. But we're having an exchange. And I'm also then in charge of if one of those readings is high and it continues again and again that I can escalate it faster. Because one of the things that traditionally medicine had was a very bad feedback loop. And generally things broke before we then actually dealt with them. So the idea that you're able to go use, whether it's uh, for somebody's um, uh, heart and blood pressure measurements or whether it's actually uh, CBT for their uh, behaviour, to go get earlier interventions generally is cheaper. So they're really useful tools. They don't don't qualify as clinical tools... (laughs) which I find really interesting. There's kind of this control thing of what creates a clinical outcome and what doesn't. I think it kind of does create a clinical outcome because if you've got somebody who doesn't have to be admitted, that's probably a very useful thing.
1: This might change as well. We now have the first sort of purely digital therapeutics that are sort of sometimes referred to as software as a drug where (laughs) there's been one introduced in the US that's specifically for opioid patients. So we might look at digital in a very similar way as drugs, but I think what you're pointing to are differences in the process between... A design process and a a scientific medical process from a development perspective, right? In science, you always, you're hypothesis driven, evidence driven. You kind of start with a theory about the case and then you want to prove it or disprove it and the design process is more iterative and also more open to accidents. And that can be actually kind of interesting. Um, and we've seen this on some of our own work. So in the MoodNotes case, we discovered things that, uh, in working with with actual patients and users, that the psychologists weren't that comfortable with because there wasn't necessarily any prior data right so then do you go there do you allow for that you know it's also the sort of a duty of care there obviously or or sort of under other interesting and less risky discoveries so we had a in, in our feedback, in, in some of the reviews, we had a mother that was a single mother with two children, two little children, and she said that she used mood notes every night uh, to sort of recap the day with her children. And so it was just a, a nonverbal way to talk about, simply by drawing the face, how was your day? How are you feeling? And it was almost a way for the, the family to gather around the hearth, right? So there are these those are the kinds of things that are a little harder for someone to discover in a clinical practice, where it's all about data towards developing a drug, whereas designers we can be much more open to these serendipitous discoveries
0: I am an avid sailor and I love the America's Cup a couple of years ago data got involved with the America's Cup when Oracle were, were in there and they changed the understanding of how wind works on a, on a sailing course that proves that every theory about wind on in being constant is absolute rubbish and I know that down in Valencia they used buoys that were measuring the wind in a fine, with fidelity that had never been done before. And then when they were, got the, the large wing sails, they were then able to go measure it at height off the water as well. And what they found is wind isn't consistent, wind is totally crazy and chaotic, and it then changed their entire approach because they now had new information. And I suppose what you're doing with things like Mood Notes and the other tools that you're building, you're building those new data sets that then need to be seriously reviewed. And say so maybe our perception of what we were doing before, because of limited, you know, observation, could have been totally incorrect. And that's a that's a very interesting challenge for people who are coming from scientific process as being the only way to do it, because I know that for most of the um, citizen data that's collected, citizen science data, it's not considered science. Yeah, I
1: mean, look, obviously, in the, in the process of science, there's, I mean, there's so many examples there of, of drugs and, and main breakthroughs that were the result of accidents. So I'm not saying those accidents don't happen in the lab. It's just in the commercial context, typically, you're after a prior theory. And so I, I think there's then less of a, of a sort of an appetite for um, these more serendipitous or even um, kind of external Discoveries.
0: So, with us to having you know, a campus here in the in New York and you know, a campus in London, the UK model as far as interacting with new theories and, and new ways of treatment is very different than here in the states. The I know for a lot of uh, equipment manufacturers, they'll decide to go launch in the in the European standards first because they actually are a bit more rational and progressive. The FDA in the States seems to be very old hat. It's still looking at digital technologies in the way it does for organic substances in drugs. How are you finding working here in the States compared to some of the latitude that you and your client or colleagues are getting in the UK?
1: I mean, you can. I think this is for a long time. The U.S. was by far the largest market right, in in healthcare. I mean, in the U.S., we're spending close to twenty percent of GDP on healthcare versus in, in the European countries seven eight nine percent so and then of course the 300 million people so f- from that perspective this was always the market that everybody focused on um, yeah so I see both really I mean and, and we're not necessarily um, experts in in sort of what's the best strategy to deal with the different regulatory groups um, I see probably more and more um, similar mindsets there as well. If you think about like something like data and privacy considerations i mean that's been more of a european topic but this is now a big topic here and a big discussion point as well so
0: yeah you know one of the troubles for the fda is that they were built off organic substances drugs their capacity to consider digital products in the same way as they have their drugs i know with uh, when the Stuxnet uh, virus came out, that the, one of the reasons that so many machines were available to be infected was that if they, if those machines had have had the patches installed in them that all software needs to have, they would have had to have gone through recertification.
1: Yeah,
0: because they were considering that a component had changed. Now, I'm not up to date with have they gone and given some latitude or change there and said the cybersecurity risk is greater than the you've changed something about the operating system. But that shows that there was a, a relatively uncontemporary understanding of what digital technology means in health. And uh, it takes a little bit of a revolution to actually see that come around. And that's, you know, there's some of those changes that boards, no doubt there's a board at the FDA to go work out what happens. How do we help inform those people so that they know the right decisions to make, whether it's your clients' as board or whether it's a government regulatory authorities? It's very important that we can go give those tools back so that they can manage up and start to make new decisions.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're doing digital health projects uh, at this moment in all of our studios. So in, in London, in the US, in Sweden, in, in Australia. So I think that's a it's a larger universal trend. Um, you know, the desire to have patients more involved, to have more personalized medicine, to have more of that feedback loop, to get um, use digital as a way to produce costs, increase outcome. I mean, all of those are, are really universal uh, needs and universal pressure points for the healthcare systems, whether they're national or private or mixed
0: Carsten, thank you for your time. It, it has been absolutely fantastic, a privilege to go get it. And I think also for the listeners to uh, understand some of, some of how that change is happening in service delivery. Because it doesn't sound like the clinicians were asking for it. It sounds like you've discovered some new opportunities. There was a little bit of inquiry that was given, but you've had the the boldness to give a proposition of new ways to do things. And that's probably very encouraging for people to realize that's what has to be done.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say that we our initial experiments in, in digital health were more in areas that, um, that are wellness-oriented or mindfulness-oriented. So sort of at that intersection of healthcare care and, and consumer wellness I think what's happening now is that a lot of these trends that have happened more in a kind of bottom-up grassroots way are finding its way more into the traditional healthcare sector
0: well again thank you for your time and no doubt this will be the first of many conversations that we have about design in the boardroom
1: thank you mark